They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. So, do badders. Um, the the next the, our next guests. I saw the story about what they'd achieved and just thought it sounded ridiculous. Uh, oh yeah, welcome to Bad Boy Running and all of that. But um, <laughs> you um, you probably know the the we've talked about the London Underground Challenge before, where you run to twenty six tube stops, um, marathon, touch the platform. They did all of the tube stops in London, which just seems insane and took a huge amount of time and amount of miles. So welcome to the podcast, the wonderful Kevin Dutton and John Collins. Hello, David. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, good. Um, but So before we kind of go into this, we, we've already mentioned slightly, um, so you Best-selling author, elite performance consultant, and co-host of the podcast Psycho Schizo Expresso with Iron Maiden frontman Bruce Dickinson. How does how does that happen? Yeah, I don't know really. Uh, Bruce and I have known each other for a while, and uh, we went out for um, we went out for a lunch with our respective other halves uh, in London a few years ago, a couple of years ago. So I don't know now, and. Um, we just had a fantastic time over lunch and we were in this restaurant. We got there about one o'clock and um, we eventually left about six o'clock when I was setting up for dinner and we were just telling loads and loads of stories and all this and that. And um, when we kind of came out and I went home, Bruce went home, um, my missus said to me, you know what, that was like, a sh- that was a show that was, it was so much <laughs> fun, you know, and all the different stories and all that. And his other half had said the same to him, uh, obviously unbeknownst to me. Uh, and so we kind of, I think, you know, the next few days we got on the phone to each other and said, oh, you know what Elaine said? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, well yeah, you know, what about a podcast? Uh, and Bruce is really interested in um, in the psychological side of things. He's, uh, yeah. he's a real renaissance man, actually. He's, uh, he's one of the UK's top masters fencers. Um, oh, wow. you know, When I say fencing, I don't mean handling stolen goods. I mean, you know, <laughs> kind of the old sword. Um <laughs> Uh, and um, he's also like obviously a, a commercial airlines pilot, and uh, so he's obviously a man of many interests. And we got on very, very well. He's a very, very intelligent uh, guy, a very curious uh, mindset as well. Yeah. Um, and we just got on, uh, and so off we went. And um, we we couldn't think of a title for the podcast, so uh, Bruce had sent me an email uh, called Psycho Schizo. Coco. That was the random title <laughs> of an email which he sent, and I was thinking to myself, "Hang on, there's a title knocking around there somewhere." Uh, but Coco obviously puts people to sleep, and don't say so. It's a podcast. Um, <laughs> so uh, we were just thinking of other words ending in O, and we came up with a few that we couldn't use. I'll leave those to your imagination. And uh, eventually, we thought, "Oh, espresso, yeah, that coffee wakes you up." So that was the story of Psycho Schizo Espresso. And uh, in fact, Bruce featured on the Metro Marathon Challenge because he. Uh, one night in a certain area of London that we were in, uh, where his house is, um, he put us up for that night. Uh, but we didn't cheat because we kept out in his garden under canvas. Uh, but uh, he did he did make us a very nice porridge the next morning. Bruce does a very, very nice porridge. 
Um, and there was no sight of that Eddie, that um, that alien creature, that Iron Maiden, um, uh, have on all of their albums. No, no sight of him at all. <laughs> John was a bit frightened that he was going to creep out in the middle of the night and um, you know kind of invade his tent. But uh, uh, once I soothed John's, uh, you know, worries, he was all right. You know. Because how how did you two know each other then? Um, Go on, John. Well, so in Dun- the... that dungeon, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> In the uh, in the build up to the um, Rio Olympics, so we we go away on a lot of training camps, go away to a lot of races and stuff. And um, I went uh, one of my like so I have like a ritual when I go to the airport because we go quite a lot. Um, I go and I get well, probably my favourite thing to do is get a breakfast at Wagamama's. I always have lunch for breakfast at Wagamama's. And then I go to uh, prep to get a hat lunch because I mean I eat a lot of food. So, and then I go to the bookshop and have a mooch around and see what's out. Um, and it was loose. So World Cup to 2016, and I I walk around this bookshop and I've seen uh, Kevin's book with, that he wrote with Andy McNabb um, called The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success. And I, I picked this book up and it sort of, you know, rung a few bells and I was like, well, I'll give this a go. And um, I mean, it was a, it, for me, it was quite a powerful book. It was, um, there was a lot of, in it that sort of resonated with what I do, uh, you know, trying to win the Olympics. And um, there, a lot of the mindset in the book I found very useful. And um, so anyway, fast forward a bit. And after the Rio Olympics, I did a... Um, uh, like a ma- an online magazine article. I couldn't even tell you who it was for. Uh, but in it, I mentioned, they said, oh, have you got any book recommendations, you know, top three books? And I was like, well, I can't really think of mm. many, but there is there is the one that I think made the biggest difference. And I, I mentioned this book. And sure enough, like um, about a month later, I get an email from, I think it was Kevin's agent saying, oh, do you fancy meeting up with Kevin? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we um, had lunch down the road from me at... Um, my rowing club, Leander Club, which is like a, quite a prestigious rowing club, like one of the most successful mm, yeah, sports clubs yeah. in the world. Um, and yeah, we had lunch there, and it pretty much all downhill from there, really. We've, yeah, the rest is history, well, as I said. I guess clearly not quite quite gold enough to be podcast uh, worthy. You know, he didn't he didn't invite you to one there, so you know, take, take that as a massive insult potentially. But checks in the <laughs> yeah. post, by the way, John. Thanks for that, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of lunches, as you can probably gather. I seem to have lunch with yeah. everybody. But, so, um, have you? Have you? Has it been friendship mainly your interactions, or have you actually worked together in kind of combining um, well, psychology uh, and rowing? Or well, one of the same really. question, actually, David. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, precisely what John says. Took the words right out of my mouth. Actually, it's you know, sports psychology. I mean, it's it's really interesting when people talk about sports psychology. Um, there is no such thing as sports psychology. There's psychology and there are psychological principles applied to various aspects of life, such as sport or business or whatever. So in a sense, there's no such thing as, as sports psychology, although it is a label. Hmm. Um, but uh, there are principles of psychology that you can apply to elite performance or to any kind of performance for that level. And, and indeed, we, we applied them to the Metro Marathon Challenge. Um, but those principles only work within a framework of trust. Um, and, you know, true results are born out of, you know, the science working, but also the relationship working as well. 
and um, and you know John and I get on very well. Um, I, we've managed to maintain a line when we when we actually do business um, that is you know separates out the friendship from from the professional uh, side of things. Um, but I don't think it would have worked had we not been mates because uh, mm. I, I trust John. Uh, John trusts me. Um, we go out um, for for dinners and lunches when when the time when the diaries allow it, um, and it's basically over those lunches and over the social kind of thing the trust is built and the relationship is cemented. So as John was saying, it's, it is one of the one and the same really. Um, you know, if you don't trust fundamental law of persuasion, if you don't trust the person who you're dealing with, or if they if you don't find them credible, and that can work in business or sport or politics or even in everyday life, then you're 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 not going to um, you're not going to do what they ask, or you, you, you're basically not going to have any faith in what they tell you. So one of the same, absolutely right. What would you say are the main kind of psychological barriers in rowing then? Because um, I can understand um, very clearly in sports, like say darts or golf, or where you've got that pressure shot, whereas rowing is almost, it feels like it's, it's less mental, more physical. Um, or I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, for starters, I'd have to strongly disagree with that. You know, it's it's a very um, <laughs> the, the, well. It, the, so the thing is, is there's like a a tightrope you have to walk. Whereas, as you say, it's a massively physical sport. Probably one of the most physically intense sports you can do in terms of like just it is a it is a completely maximal physical effort. Um, but within that framework, it's also quite technical. Um, you have you have a rhythm to create in your rowing stroke. You have to move in sync with your crewmates and you have to make strategic strategic decisions when all whilst you've got enough lactic acid flowing through your veins to kill the normal person um and it's it's being able to be clear-headed whilst um whilst under that physical load is is a very very hard thing to do and you, what you find is people fall either side of that generally, even the, some, even Olympic gold medalists. You'll have some who perhaps slightly physically undercook it, but are very composed and very rhythmical and row very well. And you have guys who maybe fall slightly on the physical side and they waste a bit of energy. They perhaps can't race with the level of composure that would be like optimal. Um, and you, yeah, there are very few people that actually toe that line correctly. But that that sort of like where the psychological impact sort of comes in. It's very easy to do like one or the other well. It's very very hard to do both well at the same time. Yeah, I'll just add to that as well, Dave. That um, I mean, I, I I get your point, and and I know what you mean. You you, you think about you know like darts and 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 you know. In terms I mean, darts wasn't a great example, really. <laughs> Yeah. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be kind here. Uh, I'm, I try to be kind, um, but um, it's it's actually rowing is a very complex sport. It. Just, I mean, when I I didn't know much about rowing um, when I uh, when I first met John, I knew a heck of a lot more after I'd finished that bloody challenge, mate. Because he didn't shut up for two weeks. Um, I could have gone on mastermind. Uh, 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 and my specialist subject could have been rowing um, but no seriously um, I didn't know much about it and it, it is when you look at it from the outside you think it's something very simple you just think about you know where you're getting in a boat and off you go off you trot but it, the amount of technical components involved in even one stroke of rowing 
um, are is immense. It's an immense number of things you've got to do. And that's a very, very complicated and high what we call cognitive load on the brain. And especially if you're doing that in, say, an Olympic final, well, it's six and a half minutes of mm. intense, brutal physical pressure. So there's a lot more going on both physically and psychologically when you're in a rowing boat than there is standing on the hockey throwing a dart at a dartboard with the greatest respect to darts players and your good <laughs> self, Dave. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I mean, I, I, I clearly hadn't picked up on that. So, uh, well, how did... Um, how did how did this challenge come about then? Like, at what point did you decide not rowing anymore? Let's let's not only do running, but do something ridiculously hard. Well, I'll kick off, and then John can and can John can um, can can pick up the baton. So, um, I um, grew up in London, as you can probably gather from the accent, um, and uh, I had uh, uh, used to do uh, a lot of running. Um, used to enjoy me running. And uh, on my running, running route when I was a kid, um, they, well, a teenager, uh, there used to be um, uh, a tramp, a vagrant, that used to live under the Chiswick flyover. And um, I didn't know, but he became, he was there for years. He was living literally under the flyover in a wooden shed with a roaring fire, you know, outside uh, the tent. And he was, he was quite a ferocious kind of guy. And uh, obviously, you know, he'd get sort of piss heads who'd come up with him in the night, you know, and trying to provoke him and all that. And he, he, he certainly didn't suffer fools gladly. And he was obviously, as you can imagine, living under the Chiswick flyover. He wasn't the cleanest kind of guy. Mm. Um, he was uh, he was quite fierce and scary. Uh, but I used to every, you know, every couple of days used to run past him at night when I was doing me doing me runs and all that. And um we actually kind of built up quite a rapport. I think he must have thought I was more nuts than he is because I was running along the A4 and the slip road to the M4, uh, which uh, which kind of says a, a, a something, doesn't it? But um, anyway, uh, long story short, one night when I was, I don't know, 19, 20, I had a big argument with my dad and um, I'd been out in the piss or something like that, I don't know, and I'd come back. We had a big argument with my dad and we lived in this apartment uh, in West London at the time. And uh, I said to him, that's it, I'm going, you know, I'm, I've had enough of all this. And I, I, I legged it out of the apartment. I didn't have a clue where I was going to go. So I thought, oh, right, OK. So I went and ended up with this guy under the, uh, under the flyover and we were having a chat and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, basically he talked some sense into me. Um, you know, I wasn't there for long. Uh, and he said something like, you know, you don't know what you've got until you've lost it. So, you know, be a good lad and go home. You don't want to end up like this. Um, and, um, I did, I, I went home and, uh, it was something which meant, left a, a kind of a, 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 a really big impression on me. Mm. Um, because I then discovered now, whether this is true or not, I don't know. I then discovered that the reason, uh, that he was living under the bridge was because, um, he'd lost his wife and family in a car accident around that spot um on the motorway above the bridge and he basically never moved on uh from that spot so those words became very poignant to me as you wow. can imagine um anyway parking that aside um i then discovered that actually uh during the pandemic uh or at some point just before i think it was during the pandemic actually um he had died um and i didn't know this uh, and of course my mind went right back to that time uh, when I'd kind of, you know, spent that five, ten minutes with him that stormy night when I'd had the row with my dad. And I thought, well, I'd really like 
to do something to commemorate his memory, but also something for the homeless in London. Because, you know, if you remember during those dark days of the pandemic, I mean, the homeless obviously were in a very precarious position. You know, they, they, they were, mm. um, you know, I think they, they were moving into hotels and, and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they were, they were basically on the streets and defenceless, even more defenceless than the rest of us. Mm. So I wanted to do something to raise awareness of homelessness. I wanted to do something to commemorate the memory of that guy under the flyover. Um, and so um, I, I basically came up with the idea of the Metro Marathon Challenge. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's London-based. Um, and I thought, well, actually, it's something that, that, that I can do um, by sleeping rough on the streets of London as well, um, just to, as I say, to add in that extra dimension to, to raise awareness uh, for the homeless. Um, and it was around about this time that uh, I'm going to hand over to John now. Uh, I had this idea and John had just come back uh, from uh, Tokyo. Um, and Elaine, my other half, had suggested, well, you know, do you want to do it on your own or do you want to do it with someone else? Um, and John can take up the story from there. <laughs> so, um so yeah, rewind a few years uh, back back to the Rio Olympics. Um, when I went to when when I competed there, we'd so we'd won a medal at the last World Cup prior our first ever medal in the world last World Cup prior to the Olympics. Myself and my doubles partner Johnny, and um, we had this like perfect run up into Rio. And we were, we had like this very, very slim chance of winning a medal, but the way things were going, we like fully believed we could do it. And the best way I can describe it is like charging up the side of a mountain is what it felt like. Like we had real momentum on our way to this like pinnacle moment. Mm. But then we raced the fight, you know, we raced the Olympics and we came, ended up coming fifth. And, um, you know, like we, we probably were quite unlucky in a certain way. Like we, um, the conditions in the final were the, were very bad for us. Um, and so, yeah, we came fifth and we came away without a medal. And it, the best way I can describe it is, yeah, we were charging up the side of this mountain and fell off a cliff the other side. And I had no mm. holiday plans. I had no plans for my break. It was just, we had this unbelievable momentum and then suddenly it just ended. And I, I found that very, very hard. Um, you know, it was a, it, like I'd say the following like six months, I was in quite a dark place. And yeah, I mean, well, that it was what it was. And um, in the, so in the build, you, build were you up- still rowing at that stage or was that kind of tying in with retirement as well? Oh, no, no. So I, um, yeah, no, I fully intended to come back to do the Tokyo Olympics. Um, mm. so I, I was, you know, I was back in training, not, not, you know, within a couple of months. Um, mm. I, I did end up going on some holidays, but uh, like, you know, you sort of mind is el- elsewhere for the whole thing. Um, and so, so yeah, in the build up to the Tokyo Olympics, I, um, was quite aware that I needed to have something lined up for when it was done. Um, mm. but obviously with COVID, you couldn't book a holiday. You couldn't plan anything. It was just like, you know, basically, you know, I was in Tokyo with knowing that I was going to come back, sit on my sofa when I got home and just have like nothing waiting there. 
Um, oh God, yeah, yeah. So I was obviously a bit, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to face that sort of same situation. I was like, I need something lined up here. Um, anyway, so I get back from Tokyo, having come fourth, there's another, what you know, I'd say that was an underperformance. Um, you know, we 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 definitely had it enough to win the bronze. Um, like again, it was probably there were some external factors that we couldn't control that probably worked against us. But I mean, that's the nature of sport anyway. So you kind of have to accept that. Um, and yeah, so come back and uh, my partner Karen, she she is also in the British rowing team. Um, so we both got back from the Olympics together, unpacked, you know, got back to this bomb site of a house, had to unpack two months of our lives and tidy it all away. And that took all day the first day we were back. And at the end of that day, I sort of, it was quite sort of well-timed and poetic, really. I, um, you know, got up in the morning and just worked solidly all day, tidying stuff up, putting stuff away, finding homes for all this, what is it, 60 kilos of Olympic kit you get. Um, mm. and uh, sat down at the end of the day on the sofa and as I've sat down this huge like gaping chasm of time just appeared in front of me going like right what now um, and pretty much at bang on at that moment I got a text message from Kevin saying check your emails um, and I went onto my emails and um, he had basically sent me a, a draft plan of the Metro Marathon Challenge and just the, in the email was like, fancy it, question mark. And I just replied with, <laughs> I just replied with, I basically didn't even read it. Um, I, it, I just was like, it sounds <laughs> stupid, I'm in. Um, and it was only afterwards yeah. I realized what he'd actually signed me up for. And given that, okay, obviously you can't see this now, but I'm 95 kilos and I, my, Car, my from from the knee down, I'm basically got toothpick legs. I literally cannot run to <laughs> save my life. And then suddenly, I'm, I'm facing 300 plus miles of running, and I was like, I, I've really messed up here. Um, and, so, and and out of interest, before we kind of go on to the challenge, do when you're going to you're in an Olympic cycle, are you prepared for kind of defeat, for failure, and is because we as runners we often find that say we've signed up for a big ultra even if you you achieve everything you want to just having that hole in your life and that lack of focus and purpose is can be quite depressing in itself but are you kind of do they prepare you for that with the um british rowing or is everything so focused on trying to be positive and just thinking about success that you can't entertain the notion of failure pretty much yeah um like the, this machine that we've built called british rowing is is a is a metal making machine and um it does there are a lot of people that get spat out the other side of it in a very bad way um mm. and that's not to be critical of what we've got here it's the 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 machine the size of the machine it would take to protect people from that that sort of uh, damage afterwards would be even bigger than the machine itself um, and mm. I just I, it, I think it, what you realise especially for me now I'm, I'm still in the team I'm in my 10th year in the team uh, what you realise is that you have to accept 
that that's going to happen. Otherwise, you'll just never recover from it. Um, like I found post Tokyo significantly better than post Rio because I was prepared for it. Mm. Um, and that, you know, it was no less disappointing. It was no less of a cliff to fall off, but the sort of tools I'd put in place as a result of Rio acted as like a cushion at the bottom of that fall. Um, and you, you just have to, you have to accept it and you have to learn that otherwise you're just going to have such a hard time every time. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a part of elite sport. I think you're going to have very high highs, but you're also going to have very low lows. I think I'll just jump in there as well. I, I totally agree with that. I think it's part and parcel of, of being an elite athlete, David, that you, you have to go in with 100% commitment. Mm-hmm. The tax on that is, as John said, you're going to get to the top of the mountain and you're going to go over the edge of a cliff at the other end. Um, but that's part of, the, part of what you sign up to as an elite athlete. Um, I mean, the All Blacks rugby team have got a great mantra, which is go, go early, go hard. Um, and as an elite athlete in any sport, that's the kind of mindset you've got to have. Um, and, you know, so again, to take a rugby analogy, if you go into, it's well known, if you go into a tackle half-hearted thinking mm. I might get injured, you are much more likely to get injured than if you go in committed 100%. Um, and so if you go into not just elite sport, by, by the way, but any kind of challenge, any level of, say, running or any level of sport, if you go in any less than 100% committed, um, you're far more likely to risk psychological injury if you don't succeed than if you do go in 100%, give it your best shot. So uh, what really? John said is absolutely why, right. Why, why is that? Why, why would you, are you more likely to get be psychologically damaged, would you say? Well, because, I mean, if you've gone in 100%, you've given, I mean, given it everything mm. you can, um, you've left no stone unturned. Um, mm. there's, no, there's no uncertainty. There's no lingering uncertainty left. There's mm. no room for doubt. Could I have done what kind of what if, yeah. Correct. Uh, you scrub, you're correct. You scrub away all the what ifs. Um, and, you know, there's always extraneous factors, as John was saying, but as an elite athlete, you sign up for that. Um, you, you, you try to prepare as much as you can. Um, but if you've if you've done everything you can to achieve your goal and you've just got beat, um, and I also find actually I know a lot of rowers now, um, and I, I do find that rowing is one of the most honest sports, and the the, the rowers that I've met through John um, have been the most honest and transparent uh, people, sports people that I've ever worked with. Um, if you get beat, you get beat, and you put your hands up and you take responsibility for it. And you don't blame other stuff. You say, okay, hands up, fair cop. Um, so, yeah, John epitomised that um, in, in, in what he's done so far. I, I'm hoping in, uh, in Paris <laughs> he won't have to. Um, and he'll come away with a gold. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. He certainly deserves it. But, um, you, you know, again, we've talked about what you deserve and what you don't deserve. And, you know, John has a great line, don't you, John? You, you, you get what you get. You know, no one deserves anything. You get what you get. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, well, for, for the, do you want to describe what the actual challenge was then for the uh, for the listener at home? Yeah, it was um, well, very very simple, David. Really, it was uh, running all of the uh, three hundred. Well, bear with me for a minute. All of the three hundred and fifteen, as they were at the time, underground stations um, on the London Underground um, uh, in one go. Um, we did it over a period of two weeks. Uh, we slept rough at the end of each night. Um, and then uh, on the final night, uh, we ended up 
in uh, Lewisham on the banks of the Thames and we slept on the banks of the Thames and then we made our way to Greenwich Park on the Sunday morning, two weeks after we started, we topped it off as you do uh, with the London Marathon. So we ran the London Marathon as well. Uh, but what we didn't uh, know was uh, that midway through, well, what I should have said was, um, I mean, in order to get the route, obviously, if you're going to run all 315 London Underground stations, you need to plan the optimal route between all 315. Now, that's not mm. um, an insignificant task. So I had a friend of mine um, who was um, uh, did a lot of work in, um, in mathematics, applied mathematics and fluid mechanics. Um, and uh, he worked out, um, apparently it's a very um, tried and tested uh, problem. Um, yeah, I did it for, at uni. <laughs> yeah, for, um, for, for, for like applied mathematicians called the yeah. travelling salesman problem, where you get a load of points and you work out the optimal distance and route between them. So um, he applied the, uh, the travelling salesman um, algorithm to the 315 stations, came up with the optimal route, and off we went. Uh, but what happened was, um, Sod's Law, uh, and we only discovered it, I think, didn't we, John, on a, uh, on a on a radio show that we were doing halfway through on the top of the... Yeah, we, uh, we took a detour, didn't we, to do a radio yeah. interview. Yeah, we yeah. did. We did. A, and it, on top of this big, I think it was the news building, news corporation building in the in middle of London. We were on the top of this. And anyway, the, uh, the interviewer, a guy called Ian Collins, uh, said, um, you do know that they've opened two more underground stations, don't you, since you've been on the road? Um, and lo and behold, they had Battersea and Nine Elms. Uh, first course, time in 25 yeah. years at Transport for London had decided to do anything remotely uh, significant on the London Underground. And it so happened to be right in the middle of the Metro Marathon Challenge. Of course, we'd already passed that point, the algorithm. We were following the algorithm. We'd already passed that point. So we couldn't go back retrace our steps and do Battersea and Nine Elms. So the only thing for it was to uh, finish the marathon and then just keep going. Uh, and so we we crossed the line in the, in the map yeah. and, uh, and we just kept going, shuffling <coughs> away with our partners, Elaine and, and Karen, uh, to uh, Battersea and to Nine Elms. <laughs> another, I think it was about another... Bless you, by the way. But I think it was another three miles, wasn't it? But you know what? I mean, it, yeah. you, you think it was soul-destroying. And to a certain extent, you know, obviously it was. But um, it's actually, though I wouldn't recommend, um, you know, the two weeks before a marathon running 340 miles, um, you know, it's one hell of a taper, as John said. Um, what I would recommend, if you can, is, is keeping going and walking two and a half, three miles after you finished, Because actually... It was just what we needed, really, John, wasn't it? I mean, it, it certainly, yeah. you know, mitigated against any stiffness. I mean, obviously, we did feel it the next day, but actually just keeping going another two and a half miles and a gentle walk, I mean, we weren't running it, um, was actually um, just what the doctor ordered. And it also tipped it down as well. Do you remember? Uh, we finished, we kind of put our kind of track suits on and the heavens opened. So we were, we were shuffling through this torrential rain to, uh, to Battersea and Nine Elms. And it was great, actually, because um, I didn't have a tracksuit top. And uh, uh, John's partner, Karen, uh, lent me a British rowing Olympic <laughs> uh, windsheeter. Uh, and I blagged my way through all kinds of doors with that for the next week. Um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was great. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's what the challenge was. And when you when you kind of look at the piece of paper that tells you your route and like how 
how does that break down per day? And also things like sleeping rough. I imagine there's a huge variety in how pleasant or unpleasant that can be based on where you decide to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, get, I'll take the first bit. John can take the second bit because John, John's got <laughs> our first night out in the open was <laughs> quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> but um, it breaks down. We had a support vehicle um, with us, um, an, ex, uh, an ex-homes veteran, actually, called John uh, uh, Samson had, was, uh, was helping us with, um, with the kind of logistics um, <laughs> of, of the challenge. Um, I don't know why you're laughing there, John. I don't know why you're laughing. But anyway, there was, uh, there was, he helped with the logistics. And we'd broken it down. We basically tried to cover, um, you know, a set amount of miles about, each day to, to average it out, really. Is that um, 20, I think we averaged just shy of a marathon a day. Yeah, just shy of a marathon a day. Uh, so it was kind of even, it was evenly split. We tried to evenly split it. Yeah. Um, and one thing we decided to do very early on, um, and this is a, a great psychological principle for anyone who's trying to achieve something which is very, very difficult and, and, and you know, over an extended period, is we started in the northwest corner of London, Amersham and Rickmansworth and all around there. Um, and it's out in the sticks, basically. I mean, this is this is the country. The London Underground is huge, and it's out in the Buckinghamshire. I think it's the Buckinghamshire countryside. And you know, we covered thirty miles that first day. And we hadn't even got out of that initial square up there. <laughs> and we we kind of, I think it was outside one of those stations. We looked at the underground map, and we thought, Christ, you know, we were shattered, and we've just got. We haven't even got out of this tiny little corner. Yeah. And it was at that point that John and I looked at each other and we said, we're never, ever, ever, while we're doing this, looking at that map again. We're just <laughs> going to concentrate on what we're doing, the stations that we've got in front of us each day. And, and we stuck to that uh, because it was, it was very demoralising. You know, you've been slogging away for 30 mm. miles and, you know, you're not even out of that kind of little north northwest corner. And it was, we thought, right, OK, let's just do, let's just take each day as it comes. It's a bit of a cliche, but that's how we did it. But in terms of pleasantness, um, yeah, there were some good nights and there were some bad nights. And I think the first night was probably the, one of the most interesting of all, wasn't it, John? Yeah, we, um, we finished the day in Harrow. Uh, which is a, a charming part of London, and uh, we so John, the guy, our sort of you know our, our man in the support vehicle. He he was the one who sort of, well, because he had experience, was like finding us places to stay. And he's like, I found you at this great park, and we you know we we're in this. Um, his car was parked in a car park next to it, and um, you know even in the car park, it was quite a threatening place. Um, Mm. And anyway, so we love these uh, these like sort of camp camp bed start type things round into this park. Uh, and I, you know, I'm expecting this like nice sealed off area or something like that. And um, no, it, we we literally just stuffed these camp beds into a bush. We we had tents, uh, like because obviously if the weather had been awful, we would have been in trouble. Mm. Uh, but we couldn't put them up because uh, someone might see us. Uh, so we literally stuffed these camp beds into a bush and climbed in. And, uh, you know, like, it, it, for starters, you're sleeping out, fully out under the stars in the cold. Every little noise, you know, in the middle of the night, I was up like a shot. Except there was more than the little noise because 
John, the guy who he would because he would stay with us quite often as, as sort of like security as well. Um, but he his snoring was like a pneumatic drill going off, <laughs> and it's like we, we've we've gone we've gone through all this trouble to like try and camouflage these camouflage these camp beds so no one could see us. And he might as well have just stood on them and screamed all night because of the amount of volume kicking out. Um, and yeah, I I have to say, like that first night we were out there, I was like, I'm not sure we can do this. I was like, if it that was the bit that nearly broke me was that first night. That my feet were my feet were in so much pain, but I was like, I I tolerate that for a living. It's it's absolutely fine. Whereas like bad sleep and someone keeping me up at night i was yeah. like I, I don't know if i can cope with that um the sleeping bit was the challenge uh, i think and um you know we 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 trained very hard to to be good at running and to be able to cope mm. with that um but we, like we hadn't really trained for the sleep and so that became for, for me that was a much bigger challenge than the the running i mean obviously but one adds to the other but um yeah that it that was that was absolutely brutal and it, you just had to take it one day at a time and and hope for the best really yeah for me it was slightly different because i don't have well i don't have any superpowers at all but the one superpower i do have is i can sleep anywhere um almost on demand so that really helped me and set me very good stead so i didn't have any trouble sleeping at all it was you know I, I was off like a light um so so that was the that that was a blessing for me the second night though uh which we spent in a in a in a thistle laden field uh, midway between i think the runway of terminal five heathrow and the m4 um uh was very interesting indeed um because that second day uh, it's really funny, you know, guys, when people say to us, and John and I have done a few interviews now, people say, oh, tell us about the times. There must have been times when you felt like you couldn't go on, you know, and you were going to give up and, you know, you're going to throw the towel in. Tell us what those were like. And there weren't any, I have to say. And people get very disappointed by that because it's often not the narrative they want. Um, but we had, I mean, John's a big, tough fella. I know what I'm doing. We trained hard. We knew what we had to do and we executed it. There wasn't any doubt that we were going to finish it. Um, we just got on with it um, and we didn't really have any problems. Um, so there were no there were no points where we looked at each other and, you know, said, oh, I'm not sure we can go on. We would have got we, 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 we executed it because we trained hard um, and we're tough. Uh, but the second night was interesting because um, the first day, we'd uh, we, we had this chat and we said look the main thing we're going to do is finish this we can't you know we've, we, we we're doing it for charity we had a nice little um uh sponsor thing going on um we raised a, a few quid uh for a running charity which helps the homeless so you know there was we we needed to finish it um and uh it was very interesting because we thought well the first day we'll we'll just ease ourselves in and we'll do a lot of walking we'll just ease ourselves in and we'll walk and then we'll run and then anyway at the end of that first day uh, as I say, we'd put in a lot of walking. When we woke up the next morning, we were stiff as boards, weren't we, John? And so I said bad. to Arthur, Bli blimey, this <laughs> is going to be interesting. 
this is good because if this is like what we're like after the first day, this is going to be very, very interesting indeed. But of course, it was a, it was a fundamental mistake because we're trained to run thirty miles a day, sleeping rough, but we hadn't trained to walk it, mm. and there were very different muscles in play. So it, that was about the only mistake that we made. And and I, I just had this inkling, and I said to John, "Let's start running, mate." Uh, and we did. Uh, and it took about a day, really, to get it out of our legs. But that second night, we pitched up in this field, as I say. Um, it was a conservation area, apparently. I don't know what they were conserving. Stinging nettles, by the looks of it. <laughs> the field was discovered with them. But that night, we had another geezer turned up um, <laughs> who wasn't our usual um, uh, guide and protector. Uh, he was another guy. Um, and he was the spitting image. In fact, he was a Ron Jeremy porn star lookalike. <laughs> um, and he was he was an extra in EastEnders uh, back in the day. And when he first appeared on EastEnders, the BBC switchboard was jammed, saying, "What's Jeremy, doing? <laughs> uh, Ron Jeremy, doing turning up in a Queen Vic?" He was is absolutely um, the spitting image. Anyway, he he spent a night with us, um, sitting up all night. Didn't have even have a tent. Poor bugger in uh, in this field in um, in Heathrow, um, and that night we had gone because John's family, John's mum and dad, don't live too far away uh, from that area. So uh, we went to their house, and uh, John's mum cooked us up a lovely dinner that night, and we did have a shower that night in the house. Uh, and it's a lovely, homely house, and it was absolutely pissing down with rain outside, and we did feel rough that night because we were kind of getting rid of that stiffness. Mm. Um, and I must say, that was about the nearest we came to thinking, oh, dear, you know, <laughs> it was on the second night yeah. because we yeah. really didn't want to leave that house and go back into this field in Heathrow. But once we did, there was no looking back, and that was it. Because so. what, what did it kind of, what, what did it tell you really about being homeless or sleeping rough? Because you've, mm. you've had an element of that experience mm. where probably a large part of it that's similar is almost the dread of mm. coming to the end of the day and thinking, oh God, I've got to find somewhere to sleep, be outside again. Like, um, did, did it, was it different to how you expected well, John's probably got his take on that, but I'll give you mine. Two weeks on the sleeping rough um, on the streets of London. Um, now, of course, we did have a slight advantage that we, when if we really needed to call on it, we had a we had a tent that we needed to put up, and that was more for safety reasons than anything else. Hmm. Um, but so so we had that. You know, genuinely homeless people, they don't have that. Um, that's a luxury. And also genuinely homeless people, um, you know, don't get to go home after two weeks. Um, they're there because that's where they are. So let's, you know, I think it's important to to, to flag up, guys, that, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that we were homeless and experiencing mm. all the rigours of homelessness because it genuinely isn't fun. But we had a taste of it for two weeks, just a taste. And for me, um, and I'm sure John feels the same, it's amazing how little time it takes to start feeling alienated and disenfranchised from society. We weren't looking at any television. We had no radio. We had, we had nothing like that. We were on the fringes of society. 
mm. for two weeks. And I was very surprised as a psychologist to 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 to, to kind of realise how alienated um, and 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 disenfranchised uh, we were. I was becoming really so. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that you become an absolute expert at pissing in public. Um, when we first kind of started off, and you don't think about that, homeless people got to deal with that. When we when we yeah. first started off, it was like, oh, you know, quick nip in that bush, you know, over there or whatever, you know. Like by the time we finished it, it was like outside Arrow's the main door. Come on, let's have a was here. Um, well, it wasn't quite that bad, but you kind of a bit. <laughs> There's no CCTV footage, um, so it was it was kind of uh, that's another thing. And I think John had, John had pointed out at the time that you know if you're homeless and you're going for jobs, and you know it's a funny side, isn't it? But if you're homeless and going for jobs or whatever, whatever, and you're trying to look presentable, you don't have a place to wash or perform your ablutions or anything like that. That's no fun. Mm. Yeah, how, how did you find it, John? Yeah, the, the thing that really struck me, well, there were two things that struck me. The first one was like when you're, and, and this, I guess this is especially true for me as like a full-time athlete, is you have these like, I mean, if you, if you work a job as well, you know, you, you sort of get up in the morning and that sort of momentum of stress and your day-to-day, whatever you've got to deal with, builds throughout the day, sort of peaks in the middle of the day. And then as the day draws to a close, you start to like wind down and think about, you know, going to bed, but you have your dinner, you sit down, you go to, and then you go to bed. And, um, that was, it's almost, it's that line, you know, you sort of have this wavy line of like, you know, the stuff you got to deal with. And, and actually, you know, we were doing that during the day, but then there was, there was no wind down at all. It's just, you're going at this constant level of, stress and energy requirement the whole time because even when you're when you should be resting you've got to keep your ears you've got to keep an ear out you've got to be aware of your surroundings you're like those like threat sensors in your brain that just don't switch off ever and um i i could completely see how people who are in that situation find it progressively harder to get out of it because just your ability to think clearly is just constantly diminished by that, by the fact that there's no cycle of rest and, and stress there. It's, it's just a constant mm. go. Um, so that, that was very, like, uh, obviously it's, it wasn't entirely unexpected, but to actually experience a bit of that was, and, 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 and sort of to back that up, we were in the position where if things got ropey, if, if it got too much, if there was any trouble at any point, my parents lived like my, you know, my dad could be anywhere in London within like an hour to an hour and a half and we'd be out there. And that is, you know, you get that get out of jail free card. And even still it was, you know, like Kevin said, you do, we felt so alienated. If you don't have that, like that's got away a ton. Um, you know, like not to have a, a, an escape is just, I couldn't imagine not having an escape in that scenario because it, it would have been pretty unbearable, if, if I'm honest. Yeah, and going back to the sleep thing uh, as well, Dave, which is kind of related. I mean, John and I had said, I said earlier that, you know, after that first day, we didn't look at 
the map in its entirety ever again after we you mm. know did 30 miles and we hadn't even got out that northwest corner we didn't look at that map again for for the entire duration we had other little rules as well which helped with the sleeping and we we decided very early on well before we'd even started to be honest that we weren't gonna we were gonna achieve the mileage that we had to achieve that day come what may and even if we hadn't done it um we wouldn't go on after dark so once it started getting dark once night started to fall uh we wouldn't go on we would can it um now that never happened we never went on after after it got dark apart from if we were nicking miles from the next day if you're trying to catch up at night psychologically that is a huge drain so we decided that if we hadn't covered the miles for whatever reason and it was starting to get dark, we would start earlier the next day. We wouldn't go on into the night. But if it turned out that we were doing really, really well and it did did happen on occasion and we could nick miles for the next day by going on a little bit at night, not too much, but a little bit, then we would do that. So uh, we had these little rules as well that we would we would kind of adhere to. But so it was very... Was about- that's about yeah. not getting into a negative That's right. mindset. That's right. So the darkness was the natural end of the day for us when we entered yeah. our kind of um, our, our end of day routine. Hmm. But it was very, very strange, actually. We were in a, a very run down part of East London and we were John was navigating on the phone um, with Google Maps and we were kind of trying to find uh, like ways through. Um, kept trying to take us through schools, didn't it, John? It was like we kept ending yeah, up that was dead weird. through schools. And I, 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 after about two weeks, I was really seriously worried we were going to end up on a register. I mean, we <laughs> were hanging around outside all these schools, and it was like, you know, it was too many. And um, <laughs> But we ended up down this – it was like a, a quite a rough estate in, in, in East London, South East London, and there was no way through it. And this woman came out of this block of flats and we thought, well, we'll ask her. And we said, excuse me, love, on the, on the map here, it says there's a, there's a way through. And I always remember, John, I don't know if you remember it, she turned around, she said, there's no way out of here, mate. And then she disappeared. And I looked at her and I said, there's a metaphor for you. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. like, it was like, it's, the other thing was very interesting where you saw these different parts of London. You, we, we went through areas of extreme poverty. Mm. and they do exist and then we went through very very affluent areas as well but john's favorite area i think was uh, uh was up in uh, up in northeast london wasn't it john faden boys is uh, <laughs> uh, uh a particularly fond memory that you have don't you faden boys faden yeah, boys it's, yeah it's it's, it's <laughs> not too far from upminster but um it, so we we well as kevin said we navigated well the whole of london so we we walked through a lot of pretty rough areas mm. and you know i i where i grew up isn't bad in west london uh but you know there are some areas pretty nearby that you probably best avoid um so i'm not i'm not like oblivious to that sort of thing and um mm. but we we went through all these places felt absolutely fine like n- never once felt like well this is a bit too much uh, except Staden Boys, I'd say, where we'd navigated these. It, so it, it obviously we, you follow Google Maps, but the foot. Uh, so you, you know we don't want to walk along motorways. Mm. So you set it up to mm. go walking routes. It took us through these fields, and 
yeah, we're trekking through this muddy field and come to this part like pathway with like huge thingy nettle brambly type things either side of it. And so we're like walking single file down this thing. And um, I saw this as we're walking down, I start seeing like a load of dirty nappies and broken traffic cones and all of this sort of stuff. And I was like, this is a bit weird. And so I sort of, as I'm walking, I go up onto my tiptoes to see over the top of these brambles. And off in the distance, I can see the roofs of a whole load of caravans. And this path is taking us straight towards them. And I was like, this is a traveler campsite we're about to go to. And judging by the uh, surrounding area, it's quite a traditional one. Like legit, it's not not a well-established one. This one's a a ready-to-go one. Um, Yeah. And I, I was wearing my bright orange uh, Team GB rain jacket. And I was like, I think I might take this <laughs> off now. Screwed it up and put it in my pocket. And I turned to Kevin and said, uh, I think we might have to be careful here, Kevin. And um, I like... It no shows how big those brambles and reeds were. It's John Six yeah. foot four. Yeah. And he was on t- it was it was literally, we thought like David Attenborough might pop out in the middle at some point. I mean, it was it was quite bizarre. Anyway, anyway, how, yeah. how was it? Well, we, yeah, so... Well, it was a bit hairy, yeah. We, um, we got there, and this kid was shouting at us. I have no idea what he was actually saying, but he was shouting at us. And um, um, we basically had to walk flat bang through the middle of these caravans. And, um, you know, like, we had people, you could, they were quite obviously just, like, staring at us out the windows. There's a couple of blokes mm. came out of their caravan and um, there was a couple that came out and walked behind the caravan, but like alongside us, as it were, just like watching us. And there was about 50 of these feral dogs just like um, hanging around us barking. Yeah. And, and I said... Mm. Well, one I, actually I, I, took a snap. One actually took a snap at me and it was like, it was, I had to move my ankle out of the way. Pretty sure. I mean, they were, yeah, they yeah. were going to bite. There was no yeah. question about it. And that was the thing, is as we were walking through, I was like, all right, they're not approaching us. They're not coming to beat us up or anything. It's like, this is fine. Um, but uh, with the dogs, they were getting a progressively more aggressive. And I said, I was thinking to myself, mm. it's one thing to just walk through here. It's a completely different thing if you kick a dog. And it's getting to the point where yeah. we might have to. Um, yeah. But luckily, luckily, we got out the other side. There was a there was a very large dog that was chained up that we walked past as well, which I was like, thank God that thing's on a chain because uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're lunch otherwise. Um, and, yeah, no, we made it through. And funnily enough, our pace picked up quite a bit after that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think one of the things which I, I really hadn't realised was um, how close areas of extreme poverty are to very affluent areas Mm. um you tend to think of like you know areas of london which are poor and areas of london which are uh uh, uh, more affluent but actually one of the things which which i'd picked up on was the fact that literally there were some times when you just had to cross the road pretty much and you went from a really, really, you know, nice houses to an area which wasn't so great. 
Um, and you can just imagine what it's like for people living in those areas. Um, mm. uh, you know, won't go into the psychology of it, but one of the uh, main reasons why there's a lot of urban unrest is because of a phenomenon known as relative deprivation. So if you are in uh, an area where you see that your neighbours are better off than you, um, then that can sometimes be a trigger, uh, a recipe for trouble, as you would imagine. Mm. Uh, and and so, you know, we, we passed through a number of these areas where literally it was like, you know, two sides of the tracks. And that was something which I hadn't realised about London, actually. Um, you know, you, it, it, I, I really didn't realise that there were these kind of invisible boundary lines where actually people were rather well off and people weren't so well off and they were right next door to each other. And, uh, so that was one of the surprising uh, things for me. I don't know about you, John. Um, I, it sort of grows on Kevin's point, but I it definitely changed my perspective on... Um, so, uh, bit of background my dad grew up in quite a and, and uh, my dad and all of his friends grew up in a pretty rough not rough but like poor council estate in Hammersmith um and him and his group of friends have you know they've moved out of there and they've done really well for themselves they've all done very well for themselves subsequently having lived in quite a deprived area and and so an ethos I've always grown up with is there isn't a situation you can't work your way out of. And, and to an extent, I do still believe that. Uh, but what, like maybe an attitude I have had, which I have now reconsidered is, you know, like are any, you know, these people, they can sort themselves out if they really want to. Um, you know, these people who live in poverty like that and actually having seen like the sort of ladder of life across London, like that where we started in Northwest London, I've, not seen many houses that big and plush before and um, and there was there was one particular area in, in Shadwell which I remember being like Jesus I didn't know places like this existed in in the UK let alone in the capital city mm. having seen how like long that ladder is and how far people have to go to you know like I my family aren't well to do they're like upper working class family um and to see how far people, how far down that ladder goes from what, where, where, how I grew up, that made me sort of realise and reconsider that actually, some people have a really, really up against it, um, and I was, you know, it definitely shifted my view of, of sort of the world in that respect. And, and did you find that as you went through different areas that had different levels of, of rich and, and poor and poverty? Did the atmosphere, did the environment actually impact on how you felt? Could you could you notice a difference? Yeah, well, I mean, we would just certainly notice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We you could certainly notice a difference. We were we as as John said, guests. I was going to say ghosts. We were guests and ghosts mm. passing through. Um, but you know, we never, apart from the time in in Thaden Boys, I, I never felt. I don't think John felt that ever we we were under any kind of threat or anything there was nothing mm. sinister um but also we were on a bit of a mission we we had a we had we had stuff to do and we we just mm. kept pressing on um i i think one of the interesting things which 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 helped us as well was you know we talk about sleep and you know the importance of getting enough sleep and all that was was, was actually making sure that we weren't hungry as well um and and that we looked after ourselves in in, in that respect 
Um, so what we call like looking, look, taking care of psychology with a small P. So you've got psychology with a big P is, is, you know, all the motivation and breaking stuff down into smaller bite-sized chunks and all this kind of stuff, um, which is your, your, your kind of psychology with a big P. Psychology with a small P is just making sure that you're okay. Every now and again asking, you know, asking John, John, ask me, you all right, mate? Okay, let's crack on. Okay. Um, you know, giving ourselves little treats. I mean, it's very funny, actually. Um, <laughs> right in very early stages, I said to John, you know, well, I had I had a, a guy who, who who had trained me, um, who was a very good mate of mine called Steve Ingham, um, who's one of um, he used to be I think the performance director for Team GB um, and um, head of sports science at Loughborough, supporting champions is his business. So he's a he's a great guy knows knows his onions, and he was kind of you know training me in all this, and he was saying you know when you get on the road, make sure you're eating the right stuff, lots of protein, lots of those running greens or whatever they are. And uh, as soon as we started, it was like, there's a McDonald's over there. Mm. Uh, let's let's get in there. And we, we thought, well, we'll limit it, you know. But, I mean, it, it was, I mean, those, those McDonald's breakfasts, I mean, they were actually <laughs> fantastic. And, I mean, it had been ages since I'd been into a McDonald's. But John was mm. suspiciously adept to ordering. Uh, yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. Last time I went into a McDonald's, he went up to a counter and ordered. But now there's these boards that you kind of press all these options mm. and all that. John could do it very, very easily. Uh, so uh, obviously John had been into McDonald's <laughs> um, um, uh, more often than I had. But it was, it was a great. In the end, it was like almost like a, all you had to do was give each other a look. And there's a McDonald's over there. Let's go in for a. Let's let's go in for those. What were those? What were those breakfasts called? There are other fast food restaurants available, by the way, folks. Uh, what were those <laughs> breakfasts called, John? What, the the muffins. Muffins. That was. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was. Um, yeah. If ever we do another one of these, I think we'll get sponsorship from McDonald's, mate. <laughs> uh, five Guys. That was another one. No, Five Guys milkshake. We had. We had. That, yeah, that, they were great. Uh, yeah. And we ended up. We had this. We were in this. Where was that place in? Barking side, do you remember? There was a, oh, the a place, place. Oh, listen, there was this place in Barking side called was it Cakes and Bakes or Bakes and Shakes or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Uh, and we went in there, and there was this girl serving in there, and she said, basically, we can make milkshakes out of anything. So we thought, oh, McMuffin right, okay. milkshake. Well, they did do those, didn't they? I think. <laughs> I mean, you made chortle, but they did actually do them, Dave. They did something like, and they did. So we said, "What's the best?" So she said, "Snickers is my favourite." Was that right, John? So we had Snickers yes. milkshakes, cut and, and then a cho- and chocolate waffles. And we had a chocolate waffle, <laughs> and I'm, I'm seriously, when we we spent a couple of hours in there having these Snickers milkshakes and chocolate waffles, and when we got up. Well, I don't know about you. I almost went into a diabetic coma. <laughs> I stood up and almost just like fell through the tables. It was like the sugar rush. Was unbelievable, to, wasn't it? Yeah. Safe to say, we couldn't do a lot of running in the hour after that. It was a lot more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but looking, taking care of yourself. You know, everyone. You know, you talk about and you know, Dave as a, as an ultra man. You all know this, mate. You know. All the psychology with a big P is all very well and good. But if you don't mm. look at after the psychology with a small P, just, you know, mm. how you're doing, are you all right? You know, just talking to so making sure you're okay, generally within yourself, hydrated, you know, well-fed, you're getting enough sleep. That's just as important. So we did that well. I think that's one of the things we've done really well. And um, I'm conscious of time because I, I know you've got a... Um something coming up at the end of the hour do you do you think this would have been like significantly harder 
solo? Like, do you think it would have been achievable? I think it'd have been far bloody easier solo, mate. Myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> brutal, um, brutal. I think. I, <laughs> I if think, Kevin had I done think, it, yeah, if Kevin cool. had done it solo, he'd still be looking for the second tube station. His use of Google Maps is terrific. <laughs> sense of direction. Sense of direction is not my strong point. I mean, literally, I had trouble getting out of my tent in the morning. That's how bad I am. So John, John did all the navigation. Funnily enough, we never we, – another one of the unwritten rules was John was doing the navigating. And I said, look, there's bound to be a time when we're going to go the wrong way. Right, John? And, and, and basically, if that happens – we're not going to moan. We're not going to complain about it. We're just going to turn around and start mm. going the right way ASAP. We're just going to do that. It never really happened, did it? Once I think that we were in Stonebridge, Stonebridge Park, and we ended yeah. up walking a quarter of a mile in the wrong direction before John realised. It felt like uh, a lot more that, than that. It, it did. It did. But that was so. That was one thing. Um, no, I, it was. It was an absolute godsend to have John around. It was. Um, it was very funny, actually, because there are times in your life when you realise, and John and I have had this conversation before, when after something's finished and you look back on it, kind of it's called the hindsight bias. You think, wow, mm. that was great. They were, that was a great time of my life. Usually they're kind of, you know, a few years previous. And, of course, you have a hindsight bias because uh, when you look back on something, it's usually worked out. You've come out the other side of it. You don't, you're not living in the midst of the uncertainty that you're in at the time. Mm. So that's why we have a hindsight bias. That's why we have a rose-tinted glasses bias for the past. Um, it's very, very rare that you get a sense that actually this is one of the times of my life when you're right in the middle of something. Um, and I did have that sense. When we'd got over those first couple of ropey days and we were approaching the beginning of the second week, and I thought, we've got this. John, John had had a few problems with, with blisters, as he would. Um, he'd managed to write those. We got over those, and he, he was feeling a bit better uh, from the blister. And I thought, right, okay, we, we were both in good nick. We were going, well, we're going to nail this. I started getting a distinct feeling, almost a feeling of sadness, actually, that I was going to be sorry when this was over. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, as I say, John's not a runner. He's a rower. Um, but we were both getting stronger uh, as it went on. And that was a testament to the training uh, that, mm. that we both put in. Um, uh, and, 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 yeah, it was during that period, and I think it was part of that, that camaraderie, the, the, the trust, the teamwork that we'd built up over the years of working together and being mates, made it very special for me anyway. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I got one of those very rare moments where I thought I'm going to be kind of sorry when this is over. Mm. I wasn't sorry, by the way. I was absolutely bloody delighted when it was over. Um, <laughs> but um, it was, uh, yeah, but um, later on, yeah, I look back on it with, with absolutely fantastic memories. And, and what have you got lined up, John, after, for after Paris then? What, what can we expect to see then? <laughs> not running that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, I don't know uh, like I don't think I could ever do like the thing is I don't I actually don't know if I'd want to do anything else like that again like it was yeah. it's one of those things where it, it took a toll on me for a long time I, I have no regrets about doing it for certain but could I do that again I don't know if I could if someone mm -hmm. said I'll oh, do it again after Paris I'd be like no nah, you're okay thanks 
Um, <laughs> By the way, like, I should I, add, I, I should add that we had a lot. Sorry, John, interrupt me, mate. But we did have a lot of support from 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 British rowing uh, and John's yeah. mates um, who came along en route. Uh, they were fantastic. So the support we had along the route was wonderful. The the, the rowers are just fantastic lads. Uh, they're, they're men after my own heart. Uh, really great lads. Um, so we had some great banter. We had some great piss takes. Um, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, so that really helped as well. Uh, and also we were, uh, for running fans, we were uh, started off by a very, very old mate of mine, probably my oldest mate, uh, who some of your listeners will remember as being still the only Londoner to have ever won the London Marathon, Hugh Jones, who uh, oh, yeah. who, uh, Hugh, uh, won in 1982. Um, uh, Eamon Martin doesn't count as a Londoner, according to Hugh, because he's from Basildon in Essex. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, And I still think that, I think Hugh still has the longest winning margin. He won by almost three minutes. He, he won in two hours, nine 25 uh so it's almost by three minutes and he started us off um up in um in amersham uh so that was great to know that he started off and we had some great um as i say support en route from the rowers um and uh big shout out also we got to give him a shout out to uh, to our mate ronnie o'sullivan as well the super player um, who's oh, also run, a isn't he? very, very keen runner and a very good yeah. runner as well, actually, might I add, um, who, um, who'd done us, a, well, his mum did us a fantastic fry-up um, <laughs> uh, somewhere over in, in in London. And that was another time when we did, really didn't want to leave the house. Uh, well, we had trouble leaving the house, actually. We were so much fun. Yeah. But a big shout-out to Ronnie and his mum, too. Well, um, if, if people want to donate to... To the charity, um, what, what's the best way for them to kind of find your page? Or yeah, well, I think uh, the, John. The, the the just giving page actually shut down now because it's been over a year. So um, oh no, oh, yeah, God, I know, it. yeah. Uh, but if they want to have a look at our, our journey along the way, the, there's a Metro Marathon Challenge Instagram uh, with, with a lot of horrendous selfies. Um, some we actually we actually ended up taking one with a cow. Um, but mostly, <laughs> mostly the tube stations. I guess at um, least three hundred and fifty or so. Yeah, so that, like they can go and visit the Instagram page and, and have a have a scroll through that because it is quite an amusing journey. And on the question of donations, um, I'll give you my bank account details, David. Um, <laughs> and if you just want, if you just want to circulate those, I can guarantee the money will be. No, I'm joking. It's all right. Um, I've got lots of Nigerian friends who I think are happy to uh, <laughs> take those details. That's right. I know. I know. So, um, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the sponsorship uh, page closed, but it was very nice, uh, very nice offer. But um, yeah, who knows? We might, we might do something again. Um, but and the is main there anything focus else? Now, well, no. Is there the anything main, else we could promote? Or uh, well, no, no. I mean, not not really, actually, David. I mean, it's. I mean, the main thing focus now is John and Paris. Um, and um, I think, are you still over in, uh, you're still in Silveretta, the training camp now, are you, John, or what? No, no, I got, uh, so today, back first home, day back at Cavisham, yeah. Oh, yeah um, okay. So I'm at the training centre right now. Hang on, if, for those of you who are watching, you can now see the lake in the background. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm here here now for a few days before we go off to Portugal for the, the pre-World Champs training camp. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So that's the, main, that's the main thing, I think. Let's uh, let's hope that uh, 
you won't need to hit the road after Paris, John. And, um, <laughs> I, I would like yeah. to think that actually on the day after the Olympic final in Paris, uh, you'll be uh, still on the piss somewhere in those bars <laughs> with a big yeah. gold medal around your neck, mate. Not not uh, not oh. running around the Paris metro with me. I'll be nursing a hangover under the Eiffel Tower, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope well, so, mate. Well, thank you both for coming on, and um, you know we'd happily have you both on back again because um, I get the sense that you've both got a thousand stories you've barely touched. Um, have you got an X-rated version? You got an X-rated version of this? We can we can tell you the true story of the Metro Man. Absolutely. Is it? Is it okay? <laughs> um, but no, look, Dave, it's been absolutely fantastic. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for getting behind it, mate, and inviting us. Of course, and, and if there's, if, happy, if there's happy anything to we can come help on again at some point, mate. Yeah, if, if there's any more stories or any any things that we can help with support, then then just let us know. Oh, thank you so much, lads. That's great. Admit I was a clown to be messing around, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town. Come back, yes, and give me one more try. Cause a love like this should I never ever die. Come back, fuck you, buddy.